0: His record-setting third Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor.
1: Dude. The the wow. the goat character actor of all time, the goat supporting
2: actor Walter Brennan, who cheered when Martin Luther King was assassinated.
0: Are you serious? <laughs> yes. Yeah,
2: he was like on set, and when they got the news, he like cheered. And Holy God. God. Yeah, Walter Brennan was like a well, fucked up guy. That's what
0: people guy. say, you know. Like obviously Ward Bond and a, and Wayne, you know, get a lot of shit, but on a quieter level, Brennan was even like farther right than they were. <sighs> he was like, Jesus, yeah, really extreme.
1: I had no idea. Yeah. I'll never look at that guy the same way again. <laughs> yeah. That bums
2: me out. He he does have like a racist album as well. It's an LP called He's Your Uncle, Not Your Dad. Whoa. And it's just a um No, is it like an anti-welfare? This is what it's de- how it's described on the back cover. Hilarious, yet completely factual, this record album finds Walter Brennan throwing a million candle power floodlight on the evils of imported and duty-free collectivism in our nation. Then it brings into vivid focus the brave moves we must make if we are to preserve the dream of our founding fathers to save our constitutional republic from the man-made nightmare it is becoming.
0: Oh my god. That's a bummer. Yeah. Yeah.
1: He seems like such a lovable old coot, you know? I know. More coot than, than lovable, apparently. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the things straight once and for all. We clear the streets along his route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He
0: won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, wow. Tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my
1: nerves. <laughs> you want to drown him?
0: It's hot out there. We all walk out there. very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and I'm here with... Ryan Saunders. And... Andrew Stasulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double-feature podcast where... Each week, one of the hosts picks a theme, and the other two hosts pick movies about or around that topic, and we all get together and run the gauntlet. This week's topic is Take Me Out to the Ball Game. But before we get to that, I want to ask uh, Ryan, how was your honeymoon? Oh, it was delightful. We had lots of fun.
2: And the uh, the gauntlet episode was a lovely send-off. as We drove around and enjoy, enjoy, enjoyed our time. Um, We had a great time. Thank you for asking.
0: You're welcome. Do you have any specific maybe uh, like a movie uh, sort of like moment that you want to sort of tell tell our audience? Just one one or two nice things that you saw uh, on your travels?
2: yeah we definitely crossed paths with some amusing you know movie memorabilia on the road at one point when we were passing through a scenic highway in utah near moab they have the moab movie history museum and it's a Collection of material from all the different productions that have passed through Moab because Moab has so many formations that like are now in many people's minds, you know, the image of the West because the, there's like so much striking, um, like buttes and landscapes uh, over there. Butts, yeah, exactly, some beautiful butts, and so many productions have passed through there, and yeah, there were some very amusing things uh, inside the museum. It's like in the basement of like a lodge hotel, and like they had things like the and Louise dummy that was in the car when it drove (laughs) off the cliff. My favorite thing was it had a binder of extras and it had all of them like mugging for the camera and describing the type of Wild West actors that they could play and I (laughs) wish that they had the binder for sale. I would have gladly paid quite quite a bit of money just to have like a duplicate of that extras binder.
1: Build your own stock company.
2: Exactly. There was even there was a funny photograph of Albert Pune later on at one point when we were passing through Wyoming we went to this old trail town and they had an old Winchester rifle that they had like dug up in the middle of the desert and it was like completely corroded and rusted and like just like disgusting but it was from 1873 and it made me think of the Anthony Mann Jimmy Stewart film Winchester 73 so I had sent a photograph to Marsh so Marsh you, you know about this and then later on in, on the same day we went to the Buffalo Bill Center of the West which is affiliated with the Smithsonian and it's an incredible museum uh, that I highly recommend anyone passing through Cody Wyoming you know check out but they in fact had the real rifle that the, I guess you could call him like the stunt shooter for Winchester 73 used. He would stand off camera and then he would shoot at the things that Jimmy Stewart was was pointing at. So it was in fact the real Winchester 73 signed by quite a few different of the Hollywood glitterati as you would say, right? You had Rock Hudson and Shelley Winters, you know. I Actually at the Moab Museum I saw all the meal tickets from Douglas Sirk's 3D Western Taza son of Cochise.
0: That's the ticket.
2: Yeah, so yeah, a delightful little romp through um, through Hollywood as well as the West.
0: Very nice, very nice. Yeah, well, we're I guess we're I guess we're really leaning into the Americana today because, of course, our topic is baseball, and we are going to be talking baseball today. I feel like a uh, like a sports uh, talk radio host right now. A
2: real Chuck Axelrod. Yeah,
0: a real <laughs> Chuck Axelrod, as seen in finding buck mchenry which we'll get to shortly so
1: yeah i mean you know i think you're more i think you're more studs turkle than (laughs) (laughs) yeah
2: Yeah, i I didn't mean that as an insult
0: (laughs) yeah i hope i'm more like the sardonic journos uh in the old chicago times yeah ring lardner senior (laughs) not to be confused with his son Bring Lardner Jr. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I mean, it's it's baseball season, and otherwise, you know, I grew up playing baseball, uh, played it all my life. I was a left-handed uh, slugger of of sorts, or I wished I was a left-handed slugger of sorts. And yeah, grew up watching a lot of baseball movies, the classics, you know, the the American classics, Major League, all those kids' films from the late '80s, early '90s, right? Little Big League. Rookie of the Year, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. So very much, you know, grew up watching a lot of baseball movies because I loved baseball. And also because the White Sox were pretty pretty sick in the early 90s. And so that sort of cemented my lifelong fandom. And I got to say, once again, guys, really, really, uh, really happy with this double feature you programmed for us. So let's just get it going. Andy, why don't you tell us what you picked? One of my favorite movies, of course.
1: Oh yeah, and mine as well. I chose the great John Sayles 1988 film Eight Men Out. For those who haven't seen Eight Men Out, this is a a brilliant film that explores the 1919 White Sox scandal, also known as the Black Sox scandal of 1919. This is when A group of White Sox baseball players got together and conspired with a group of shady bookmakers uh, to throw, to intentionally lose, the World Series of 1919 against the Cincinnati Reds. And they did so. And then it was exposed through the work of several Chicago newspapermen, journalists, Two prominent ones that are featured in the film being Hugh Fullerton, who's played by the great Chicago uh, writing legend Studs Terkel, and the other, Ring Lardner, played by director John Sayles himself, Uh, and they sort of led the—well, Hugh Fullerton and Ring Lardner— along with some others, uh, sort of helped expose this. And it became a huge scandal. A a big trial uh, resulted, a big celebrity sort of circus trial resulted. Uh, And even though the players were acquitted during the trial, the result of this scandal led to the formation of the, uh, I guess, the the Major League Baseball Commission with... uh, the arrival of Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who would become the first uh, lifetime appointed commissioner of baseball, who, regardless of the fact that the players were acquitted, would give all the players who were involved lifetime bans, notorious lifetime bans from baseball. Uh, So this film explores that story, and uh, it can be uh, there's a lot of twists and a lot of turns to it. It's a very beautiful and I I think a very touching uh, and at times very infuriating film because it is a John Sayles film. So it sort of hits a lot of hits a lot of notes. Um, and yeah, it's just a, a great film that features some really good baseball sequences, awesome period detail for for 1919, and you know um, a film that really exposes. I think, some of the the darker sides of professional sports. So that's the film that I brought. John Sayles' Eight Men Out. Ryan, what do you got for us? So I brought a
2: film from another great filmmaker who unfortunately has had to spend a lot of his career doing for hire work you could sort of uh, qualify it as and this is definitely one that shows all the signs of for hire work here is a film that was made for showtime uh, is based off a children's book but yet here comes Charles Burnett to, to lead us uh, through this film and he brings with him some of the all-timers. We've got Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee and they star in the film Finding Buck McHenry. Uh, Finding Buck McHenry came out in 2000 and it tells the story of a young boy who is, you know, he's in it for the love of the game. His name is Jason and he is... For the love of the cards, really. For the love of the cards, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he he's a really dedicated player, he's just not very good. And and I guess part of that reason is because he is blinded by his love of the cards. He has an idea of baseball in his head that is holding him back from both his own abilities on the field and just also, you know, connecting with all his other fellow teammates uh, when they're out there, that synchronicity that you need in, in baseball. So Jason, because he's not really a star athlete here on, on his team, he gets cut and he's getting put on an expansion team, which will be led presumably by a man named chuck axelrod who has just moved to town with his daughter and he's going to be a sports newscaster and his daughter also quite a good baseball player he's trying to get her on on a little league team as well so jason you know he's really torn apart about being kicked off the team so and and In a romantic gesture, he rides his bicycle off of the pier into the lake in front of the sight of Ossie Davis, who is a man named Mac Henry and the custodian at his school. Ossie Davis, uh, who was there fishing, then fishes Jason out of the water and introduces him to his grandson, Aaron, who has recently been orphaned from a... uh, His parents died in a horrible car wreck down south. And the more time Jason starts to spend with Aaron and his grandfather, Ossie Davis... Mac Henry. He starts to realize that Mac Henry knows quite a bit about baseball and is quite a good you know, not an official coach at this point but a guide on his on his baseball journey. And he starts to get a little bit suspicious as he's learning a bit more about baseball, about black men in baseball and he starts to learn about the Negro League and he comes across a baseball card of a man named Buck McHenry and he notices quite a bit of similarities between Mac Henry And Buck McHenry. So then begins his journey to sort of, you know, against Ossie Davis's wishes to prove once and for all that his custodian at his school is a legend of baseball who had a scrape with the law and then disappeared from sight thereafter. And uh, we'll get into how that journey goes as we talk more about the film. But yeah, that's uh, Finding Buck McHenry, the Charles Burnett film. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Absolutely. Well... Uh as, as I am wont to do, I wanna I wanna start with a quote and a little little context for the era. And I found a short Jay Hoberman piece from Art Forum published in 1989. And it's about baseball movies and just baseball in general and baseball as this American cultural phenomenon, right? And you know, what can be said about baseball? A lot of things, right? Baseball, you know, sort of emerged after the Civil War as this, yeah, American game that people became romanticized and, and and all that stuff, and then Turned into big business, and it endures as yeah, like a you know a never-ending symbol of the United States and in this the American
1: kind of, pastime. Yeah,
0: right? the yeah right, America's pastime as as it were. And I found this this really interesting from the perspective of Hoberman because he sort of as as you'll see, he sort of talks about how baseball movies really took off in the 1980s. And something having grown up in the 80s and 90s, I'm not I wasn't really cult you know aware of of that fact necessarily. Obviously, they've always, you know, made baseball movies, uh, whether it's Lou Gehrig or, uh, yeah, the, the Stratton story where the guy shoots, his, shoots himself <laughs> uh, and can't play uh, play ball anymore. But really, it's the 80s where the, it becomes sort of a mainstay of, of film production and becomes what we think of now as like the baseball movie. So Hoberman writes, not just a TV mainstay, baseball is also specularized in the movies, Once these baseball films were notorious snore fodder. From Pride of the Yankees, 1942, to the Bad News Bears, 1976, their quintessential mode was the dreary inspirational, or the stead fan dance. The new films of the 80s present baseball as baseball, but also something more. An American masculine rite of passage, Major League. The unregulated capitalism of America, Eight Men Out. The essence of American boyhood innocence, stealing home. The reaffirmation of an eternal America, field of dreams. The promise of adult redemption here in America, all of the above. Bull Durham, the most ostentatiously authentic and self consciously literary of the current cycle, presents baseball as an American pagan cult. <laughs> Bernard Malamud did the same thing in The Natural, a 1952 novel and 1984 film. Philip Roth lovingly satirized the idea in The Great American Novel, 1973, whose characters include a slugger named Gil Gamesh. Although all sports have specific spatial coordinates, baseball is one of the few that, like a religion, creates its own time. Not to mention its own oracles and sibyls. And, as befits a sacred right, baseball is widely held to be the biggest betting sport in America. This is why the Black Sox scandal in which two pitchers, five regulars, and a utility infielder on the 1919 White Sox colluded with a pack of gamblers to fix the World Series, has cosmological resonance that the rigged presidential election of 1876 could never have. Democracy is a way of life, but baseball is an article of faith. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, yeah, so really I was just thinking about, yeah, I guess, yeah, the baseball movie really having a moment in the 1980s and the two films we watch sort of being uh, a part of that cycle, however immediate or delayed in the case of the TV film, right? So, Eight Men Out, of course comes out in 1988 amidst this cycle of baseball movies, right? And I think as you pointed out, Andy, it is, yeah, just by the nature of its story, it is a downbeat sort of affair, you know? Yeah,
1: I think, you know, we've talked about this a lot in the past when we've just pontificated about sports movies and, and you know, where baseball films often stand. And so many baseball films do, I think, tend to lean very heavily into that sort of mythic, maudlin, uh, American romanticism. But w- why Eight Men Out has always stood for me, um, you know, different than so many of those or, you know, outside of that, is that I think sales, for some, some reasons which we're about to get into, You know, he really tries to strip a lot of that away. You know, at the core, this is a film about labor and it's about class struggle and it's about corruption of of many different kinds. Right. And I think that there's for him, you know, uh, an interest in not necessarily exploring baseball as sport, but baseball as business business baseball as capital and the issues that arise as a result of of that. You know, what I found very interesting when I read an interview with Sales when he was talking about the film was that the thing that first inspired him to, to jump into this story was actually the Watergate scandal. Again, this idea of like corruption and corruption of things which are meant to be you know, above corruption, beyond corruption, these offices, these positions and all of that. But anybody that knows anything about John Sayles knows that nothing is sacred for this man. And for me, Eight Men Out is is really, I think, best viewed as that. It's a great baseball film, but I think what makes it, you know, just a, an an amazing film in general is... This, this core, which is about more than just simply a game, right? Yeah. But, but about how, how we struggle simply to exist in a world filled with inequality.
0: Yeah. And you know, one thing that I found just absolute like galaxy brain moment watching Finding Buck McHenry this morning when and, and I and I don't wanna I don't wanna tip it here because we'll talk about it, but when it's sort of when Buck McHenry's backstory is revealed in Finding Buck McHenry, there's talk about black players barnstorming and throwing games for money for white audiences. And I was I was howling because both movies hit on this very specific you know sort of first half of the 20th century baseball thing of yeah this sort of varying levels of corruption or in in this case racism that led uh you know certain black players to throw games because they wanted to keep playing so on and so forth right and the fact that both of these films just totally randomly like share that core and share that sort of like these de- deflationary notions of like the myth of baseball. I mean, both of these films really do like puncture that myth or or push back against that myth. And I thought that was super fascinating, right? that well, it works.
1: Yeah. I mean, Sales said for him to go into Eight men out, right? It's obvious. For, for so many people on the outside looking in, right? When they hear about something like that, like players intentionally lost, like, isn't it sacred to always like win, you know, like this idea of just, you know-
0: Fair play. You Fair
1: play, you play to win the game, right? Stuff like that. And the way in which these players- Throughout history, uh, have been sort of demonized as a result. Oh, you know, yeah. it's the ultimate sin what they did. But sales wanted to come at it from the perspective of like, wait a second, hold on. Like, let's, 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 let's think about this a little bit. Why would they do this? Not because they're evil. <laughs> they're not like just these villains, like, <laughs> yeah. And and sales like very clearly from the get-go in this film, like, establishes the terms for why something like this would happen, you know? He shows right away, and this is something that I think gets lost by people who look at, you know, professional sports today and, like, how well-paid athletes are today, that, I mean, these guys were paid nothing. I mean, they were paid, you know, sales uses the phrase very early on in the film, living wage, right? Uh, They have this great moment where Charles Comiskey, the owner of, of the uh, Chicago White Sox is going on and on and on, played by
2: Sheriff J. W. Pepper from *The Man with the Golden Gun*.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so
1: he's he's going on and on to all these journalists. Bomb alert! Yeah, the non-sirens are going off. Yeah. So he's. He's going on and on and on to all these journalists about how the, the White Sox, you know, they are, they are this amazing team. You know, they in, in 1917, they'd won the World Series. They were one of the top ball clubs they looked like they were just going to steamroll yet again to another world series and he's going on and on and on about how great the team is how they're going to win the world series and he's he's talking about all of his players and you know in these very positive terms and then sales who plays the sports writer ring lardner says well if you value this player so much why don't you pay him a living wage and of course Kamiski just steamrolls right over this but it's established that these players are are struggling financially and they have owners who seem totally uninterested in 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 helping them out at all financially while they're reaping all the benefits of of running these successful like Entertainment business.
2: Yeah, it's like the only gesture that the owners can afford is to, as a bonus, giving them like a a flat bottle of champagne to celebrate yet another victory. Yeah. Or if there are even promises of bonuses or just like any other compensation, it's all rigged against them. Mm -hmm. You know, Eddie is told if he, you know, wins 30 games, he'll get like a solid bonus, but they figure out a way to bench him so he's only able to play 29 and not able to meet that goal, even though he clearly would have. Yeah, so Eddie,
1: brutal. Eddie Seacott, the pitcher. yeah. They, they established, like, very early on as well that he's, you know, an incorruptible man that is, you know, this, like, sort of moral figure, and yet, when that happens, you know, both him realizing the player's got no bonus except for bottles of flat champagne and he's been cheated by the owner of his ball club out of his bonus that he then finally says fuck it you know because he's already been approached and turned down the players who wanted to you know run this confidence scheme whatever you want to call it and he's like no no no, i'm not gonna do that but then yeah when his owner like just just blatantly fucks him over he says you know what all right i'm getting mine yeah he joins
2: the uprising and it's
0: like it's such a polemical moment you know that i think certain people would maybe roll their eyes at because it's like so you know pitch him the the thing and and he's like no he meets with comiskey and then he's like yes i'll do it you know yeah it's very sort of cheesy in that way but you know it just like reminds me of like old soviet films and the way they like depict the boss and mm-hmm. strike you know like i have no issue portraying comiskey that way you know mm-hmm. like baseball owners and sports owners are like by and large eat like actually evil people yeah uh
2: much like <laughs> sheriffs of southern counties like jw pepper I, I was like bringing it up partially as a joke but i also think it's like pretty brilliant casting like i like that's comiskey like i see it you know there's so much that that guy brings with him just like with his jowls and his face and his like hulking figure you know well,
1: really i mean t- to that point he is I would say objectively portrayed as like the well, next to judge, you know, Kennesaw Mountain Land is portrayed as like the worst fucking person in this whole scheme even the gamblers I think are portrayed in a much more sympathetic light you know that they're just sort of like we're just trying to get our own slice of the pie here too you know sure well
0: because it's all you know sales it's all about the hierarchy and I think one of the things I really appreciate about eight men out is the sort of eagle's eye view you're going from children on the street to the halls of power to the back rooms of power this is also very much a film about back rooms, which is classic sort of early 20th century stuff. But I do think like the opening of the film is this extended montage sort of musical kind of thing that goes on for quite a while because it's establishing so much. And in addition to all the Comiskey stuff we were just talking about, it's intercut not only with the game, but with the two gamblers in the crowd, played by Christopher Lloyd and Richard Edson, who are talking about the fix and and what it would take and what people can be bought for and you do get this like dialectical sense that again all these players are being talked about like commodities right or they're being talked about in terms of their value or they're being talked about like racehorses you know that Mm -hmm. kind of uh and comiskey even uses the phrase at one point i got the horses smitty i got the horses that's right. right.
1: Talking about his player,
0: it's like in uh, in Michael Mann's Ali when you know Ali is sitting with all the, the old you know the white guys from Kentucky and there's all these race horses in the back, right? That sort of sense of ownership that these guys had.
2: Yeah, it's a really it's a really stunning opening. It reminded me actually a lot of. The like first hundred pages of um, Don DeLillo's Underworld because <laughs> sure. especially like when it was starting with the kids like attending the ball game and trying to get in and then like moving around then you get all these like different notable figures in the crowd like it's it's structured in a very similar way. Um, so I thought that was just like yeah,
1: kind of fun. Yeah, sales. I I read this great interview with him, uh, and and he was specifically also talking about that opening uh, because he was like, you know, one of the issues he said he was confronting, even with the studios as they were trying to get this film financed, was that they felt that there were too many cast members there were too many characters so and that the audience would have a hard time following it and And i think they did yeah and and he said you know for him that opening sequence was to an extent like his best way to try to do that to introduce the characters introduce who they were introduce their role in the scheme and yeah you know the issues that they would be facing right i mean it really helps that
2: they're all like recognizable faces that there weren't like You know, he wasn't filling out the cast with a bunch of, you know, nobodies or first timers. Like, I actually think it helps that, like, I recognized all of the actors. It made it much easier for a guy like me who doesn't know too much about the scandal itself um, to just keep track of everybody. I never felt like unmoored. Well,
0: yeah, you're lucky, though, because I doubt a lot of people in 1988 would have recognized at least Michael Rooker. Sure. Uh, I mean, I do know that a lot of these guys were in other sales films already. And obviously, you know, Strathern and, and some of these other guys are, are well known but you know Sheen I mean Sheen and, and Cusack especially is very young Yeah, yeah. I know people would have kn- they would have known who he yeah he, he had was, been in like yeah, Better Off Dead anything. and a few they others they were certainly
1: yeah. up and coming talent yeah. you know at I, the time but now like,
0: they're just like yeah. It's, I thought Cusack oh, yeah.
2: almost like looked younger in that movie than he does in those teen movies
0: honestly his, he's, his, kinda, he's got like a
2: really tiny yeah. baby face in this one compared to yeah like Better Off Dead and some of those other so fresh. and face. this is a few years later this is so you know, peculiar. a funny thing,
1: too, that I read was uh, in the film, John Cusack plays George Buck Weaver, who is, you know, one of the figures who was a part of the Scandal and who was banned, but, you know... Allegedly. Who, right, allegedly, but, but uh, uh, who you know, turns out Buck Weaver didn't take any money, even though he was privy to the meetings. His biggest sin was that he didn't rat on his yeah. on his fellow players. And, you know, that's explored in the film as well. But he was originally pl- uh, approached by sales to play Eddie Collins, the college guy. Uh, the college boy, which is also established. Like so sales talked about that, right? That you know, his opening as well was to not portray this team as just this like you know, romantic, oh, look at these guys, they love each other, this great team. Like right away, he's also establishing divisions within the team, this sort of class division, because you have this guy, Eddie Collins, who was a college boy, went to Columbia. And you, you know? learn
0: that he has a good contract like the other players right. because he had been traded for and he, a college guy, had negotiated like a good salary right. before that was done. You and, know,
1: and there's this like edge between the players as a result of that. But but Cusack was originally approached by sales to play this character, but that Cusack said no to him. He turned it down because uh I think Eddie Collins plays second base in the film and Cusack said, I'm a third base. I can't turn a double play. <laughs> like he, he's like, he's like, I couldn't do, he's like, I figured there's no way I could pull off a believable double play. But again, I think that's also an interesting point because for as much of this film that is about you know, as you said, Marsh, like the, the things that are going on behind closed doors and in hotel room hallways and in saloons, oh, yeah. there's a lot of baseball that's actually played in this film. You know, you see a lot of really great and I think very well done baseball sequences and sales, you know, was like these guys were for the most part, you know, this is not cgi i mean these guys were really pulling a lot of this stuff (laughs) off right you're not pretending to hit a baseball like at one point even db sweeney like had to hit a triple like and they were doing it on camera and db sweeney who plays that's
0: a wide shot long take where it dollies in the opening Mm -hmm. uh, and you see you know joe jackson round all the bases as the cameras like dollying into third base Yeah. yeah
1: and he had to hit that triple and not only that D.B. Sweeney's right handed, but Shoeless Joe was a lefty. So DB Sweeney had to hit a triple on camera as a lefty in the box. That's hard as hell. Yeah. So there was like concern for some of the actors about like being able to pull a lot of this stuff off, you know, and to do it on camera convincingly.
2: Yeah. I mean, not to undermine that, but I will say one thing I thought was kind of amusing about the film was when they are throwing all the games all I could think of, I was like, man, like, these guys aren't very discreet. Like, you know, they could be, and I wasn't sure if that was just because, you know, most of those (laughs) games like end up functioning as just a compilation of them failing plays on purpose. So in
1: your head, you're like, dear God, like these guys. But that's also, you know, uh, established because, you know, when, so word gets around as they're entering the series that, the fix is in, right? That's when uh, Hugh Fullerton and Ring Lardner sort of start looking at the odds and going, wow, you know, the White Sox were these, you know, big favorites to win and the odds were with them. But then just as the series was beginning, the odds wildly shift to like even money. And that's when they say, hey, there might be something going on here, right? Something we don't know about. So Hugh Fullerton, this this sports writer played by Studs Terkel, says to Ring Lardner, played by John Sayles, like, how about you circle all the plays that seem fishy to you, and I'll circle all the plays that seem fishy to me, and we'll compare later. And they're from the get-go also looking at those plays going, Are you fucking kidding me? Like, this is so obvious.
2: There's a really funny moment where I think it's Studs, he circles one of the innings, and then Sales, like, looks over at it to kind of nod, and I was imagining, you know, Studs being like, hey, like, no cheating, like, we're supposed to compare (laughs) later, like, quit peeking at my paper, you know?
0: Well, you know, it's actually brought up in uh, Finding Buck McHenry. So you're saying you threw games for money? No, I'm saying that if we wanted to be invited back, we lost. Must have been hard to lose. Yeah. Make it look convincing. It was. And I think to answer your question, Ryan, they did a very bad job of it yeah. because it would be like Michael Jordan losing the finals and just like being bad like that wouldn't happen right you exactly. know that's like the equivalent yeah, they were the best team
2: yeah they're like, not even discreet leading up to it it felt like they were like telling everybody and their brothers yeah you know? well they
0: have open contempt i mean you know various players to varying degrees are more comfortable with it than others like hap Felch, played by charlie sheen who's sort of he's the center fielder who's depicted as a kind of like bar fly and a party boy yeah, he's telling everyone, like, throughout the movie, he's bragging about it. Chick Gandol, played by Michael Rooker, and uh, the Swede, uh, played by Don Harvey. Yeah, they are, I mean, they're pretty much, they're out in the open, because, again... Yeah, they're just talking in public places, yeah. in the bathroom, on crowded trains. And I think that's key, also, to the understanding of, like, the whole scandal as this thing, where, like, to these guys there's already like warfare being waged against them out in the open right they sure. feel like yeah. that fight has already begun what are you going to tell people not to take money in a society that's obsessed with money in a society that's corrupt to the to the core and they're just classic they talk about all the time right getting what's mine or what we deserve right cuz and- they're being cheated blatantly to their faces by owners yes. and
1: and everything so you know it's all right there on
0: the table well cuz uh. it's like a very interesting time in just like american history at large because this is like a new class of laborer right it's like the leisure class same thing with movies right where movies had all these struggles with unions and labor because the rise of the entertainment industries and sports included and so there's no precedent for what these guys are getting paid or getting paid what they're worth as this sport explodes uh, particularly at this time and even further right the fact that it's 1919, it's just after World War I, there's a rampant nationalism and Americanism that's tied up with baseball, Uh, and again, that's, you know, to me, like, you you, you said it, it's a good baseball movie, and it's also a good, like, political sort of polemic, because obviously that's what sales is interested in, how baseball, even this scandal, gets wrapped up with anti-communism, with anti-labor, and that's what's going on in 1919? That's mm-hmm. the Red Summer. So just the tapestry, I, I, you know, I love it. And I love how it, it goes through all these, yeah. Just, I mean, it is so much, and it is so, like... I mean, I guess, Ryan, I'm curious. It was your first time seeing the film. I would be, like... I've seen this film too many times to, like, know how it actually feels to see it with, like, how many characters there were. Were you just, like, riding along? You know? Yeah,
2: I was pretty much just riding along. I mean, it's an interesting question because... There are so many things I love about the film, um, and then when I had like looked up Rosenbaum's capsule afterwards, it made me laugh, and I like the film way more than he does. But I actually don't disagree with like the majority of what he says. Like, I mean, Rosenbaum calls the film stylistically pedestrian, and I wouldn't go that far. But there were times where I. I do wonder if maybe because he had so many people involved and all these actors that there are things that, like, there were, he has a couple, of, like, gliding camera movements where, like, you know, you're following two people and then he picks up with the next people. And it never felt super smooth to me. It felt, like, very directed in kind of, like, an intrusive way. But that doesn't really take away what... From, like, because I'm like fully with his argument with the film, and I think it's very clearly developed, and I think that that in and of itself is like quite impressive. Um, Just specifically, like, the connections to labor and all of that. Like, to me, while watching it, I'm not thinking, like, oh, this is just, like, a boring baseball movie. I'm like, this is a film about (laughs) so much more. So, like, specifically as, like, my first encounter with it was, was, like, extremely rewarding in in that sense. I, I, I personally wasn't really rolling my eyes at, like, you know, those polemical moments. Like, you know... When when Eddie does, you know, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm going with it, like because I do agree there is like a sort of a like like a Russian righteousness to like, you know, the workers uprising. Like I did enjoy that. And I guess having gone in, I actually didn't know how underpaid baseball players used to be in my head. It is very much like star athletes because it was
1: almost a question I had at first. I was like, well, what is the issue here? And, you know, I I think it's important to point out what Sales also says about this film, which is, you know, that it isn't just about, again, these players, right? And it isn't just about baseball and that, you know, for him, this is about humans and people and our frailties and our failures. And uh, another great quotation from him about, like, the inspiration, as I said, you know, this film sort of first kind of popped into his head when he was inspired by Watergate and the scandal involved with that and all this stuff, and he said, like, you know, this film is also about conspiracies, right? It's it's about this big conspiracy that that falls apart and it falls apart during. The series, right? Like as you said, you know, when it's like, isn't it obvious? Yeah, it was obvious to everybody yeah. who watched it, right. and it was like immediate <laughs> that people were like, "What the fuck?" And everybody starts double crossing each other while it's happening, and it just com- and it almost unravels because at a certain point, the players start saying, "Well, fuck it, let's just win." We haven't even been paid yet. Yeah, they were promised to be paid. Like up, why, front. up front and, and with bonuses after each game that they threw, they started to not see any of that money. And then they turn around and win a couple games and say, well, fuck it. Right. And then the, the gamblers come back and
0: say, no, no, no. Like we're going to kill your family. We're going to fucking kill your family. Like, <laughs> exactly.
1: And they're like, Oh shit. No, like we gotta follow through with this. Like you can't double cross these guys. As a
2: first encounter, I was quite lost after game three, um, in terms of like, wait a minute, have they been paid? Have they not been paid? There no, there's so a couple of scenes where they, yeah,
0: they confront like Abe, who's working for Rothstein, and they confront him twice. I think throughout the series, and both times he's like. The money's tied up, and the second time they like threaten the players with guns, they're wow. just like, "We're not paying you. Go away."
1: Well, yeah, because it's I guess yeah, in that sense, it's a little confusing, right? But like the whole thing from the gambling perspective starts with those two guys, you know, Sleepy Bill and Maharg. These guys were like, "Hey, we got a pretty good idea here," yeah. but they don't have the capital. To put up front. So they've got to go to some of the bigger bookmakers, some of the bigger gamblers. That's where this guy, Sully, comes in. Sports Sullivan. Sports Sullivan, Sully, this guy from Boston. And then, of course, they also take it to, eventually, the the big man himself, you know, Arnold Rothstein in New York. And Rothstein, right away, is like, no. And he sort of says no because he's like, this is going to get out. This is too obvious. And all these like nickel and dimers, as he calls it, getting involved. He's like, how long do you think before this thing gets out? And like, We don't want to be associated with that. But he also knows that if Rothstein's involved and he bets on Cincinnati, it's going to shift the money and it's going to not give him a good payout. But anyway, all the gamblers then, they still sort of figure out ways to get through it because they're all sort of like, well, if you give me some money, then I can put it here. But then they all themselves bet with that money on the games, hoping for big payouts. But when one of the games the players win, like all those gamblers get busted as a result. So they no longer have the money. So it is kind of confusing, right? It's like, but it was probably extremely confusing for them too because they were like, you said you are going to fucking lose. I put all the money on it. Should have been a sure thing. But there's no such thing as a sure thing. But again, that goes back to this quotation I wanted to share Um, from sales where he was saying, you know, this is about conspiracies. And what he says is most conspiracies fail because their perpetrators are a bit ashamed of what they're up to and don't have enough meetings. (laughs) People think everyone's on the same page and then you get a loose cannon like, Gordon Liddy running around you know and like it was like the Watergate thing right and that's what he said about this it was like these guys all had this scheme but they fucked up because they didn't coordinate yeah. and and they they blew it they, lo- they won a game that they should have lost they lost a game that they should have won and all these gamblers as a result started to fucking turn on each other and double cross one another and deny people payouts that they were promised which in turn sent the players off on their own to the point where they were like well fuck it the whole thing's off then screw it you know so as a result like yay yeah, it's just it was like this really poorly planned conspiracy.
0: But also that's almost like deliberate, right? Because once Rothstein gets involved, he really manipulates it to the end at a remove. And I think again, that's part of sort of like you know, sales's perspective. obviously, who gets away? Not the small time gamblers, not the players. But Rothstein does. He's like on a boat going on vacation with all the the secret millions he made from betting on it. And so like, cause he yeah he turns them down and then immediately makes a phone call to another guy and is like, hey, we, we'll do this or whatever, mm-hmm. right? He's he's already backstabbing people the minute. It's proposed to him. Yes, and it's Michael Lerner, by the way, uh, looking very uh, thick. and, oh, and he's, nice. He,
1: he's great. He's very wide. He's <laughs> oh, like
2: the yeah.
0: size
1: of three men. I,
0: <laughs> I fucking love him. Also, just really quick note on on my mortality. But now that I'm you know a little older, I look at sales and Lerner in this film, and I and I and I go, oh, they're not that old. No, yeah. you know, when I was a kid, mm-hmm. these guys seemed like ancient. But mm-hmm. I was really I was really shook. And how I was like, oh, he's, David Strathairn's probably my age. That's, <laughs> that's embarrassing. Anyway, uh, yeah. sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but again, like to your
1: point, you know, I, I think it's, it's again, it's, you know, why this film to me is like, it's, it's. I, I don't think it's an insult or a, a discredit to the film in comparing it almost to sort of like Soviet era Eisensteinian sort of, you know, critiques of, of capital and class and stuff. Because, I mean, this film is really about how capital creates rifts. Like, none of the, there's plenty of money to go around. If everybody plays it straight, like everybody was gonna get paid, right? And even from the get go, if, if fucking Charlie Comiskey had just paid Seacott his bonus, they said yeah. they would have never been able to pull it off because Seacott was pitching three games and so they important. needed him, yeah. right? So if fucking Comiskey had just paid him what he should have been owed, Like this whole thing wouldn't have gone on if all these gamblers had gotten together and said, Okay, let's be very specific about like how we're gonna go about this instead of trying to
0: double cross. I mean, think about it this way. Other World Series is we're have and were probably rigged. Oh, yeah. Sure. yeah. And those guys well, got, they learned away from this. got away
2: with it. Yeah, them. I mean, even yeah. watching this, not knowing like some of the subtleties of the behind-the-scenes here with baseball, I was like, I could have planned a better fix than this. Absolutely. Because it almost seemed like, I, I couldn't tell, was their idea that they would just lose like five games in a row? I'm well, like, those you were sort have of like, like yeah. they should have won games too. But, but the, the That's the thing about said, the meetings.
1: They didn't have enough meetings. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes.
0: Because that's the gamblers, that's the gamblers, Gambler's press too hard, right? Yeah. Already they're, they, they're making demands. They tell Seacott to hit the first batter on the first pitch to, to show, show that the it's fixes on. In. Yeah. And you mm-hmm. go, you want him to hit the guy on the first pitch? Like this guy had a great year. He's not, gonna... you know, it's, yeah, it's already. So again, these external demands are ridiculous, right? Anyone fixing a, a series would go, you don't lose every game in a row. You don't do, you know. And that like leads all to that, the attention yeah.
1: too in that first game because the first couple of plays, like after that, like they're playing it straight, you yeah, know. They're too
0: embarrassed.
1: Right. And that's what one of the guys says. He's like, nobody wants to look bad out there, right? <laughs> like, yeah, it's going to, Seacott's going to have to do it all on his own, you know. And he does look kind of frustrated. And it's, a, I, I will say, like that whole sequence of the World Series to me, was was so well done because, like, there's so many layers to those games. Like, oh, yeah. the players, some of the players in on it, some of the players who aren't in on it, and the tension of all of them working against each other yeah. in a game. And yet, like, the Cincinnati players are sort of just sitting there like, what's going on? Like... And you get, like, uh, Michael Rooker's Chuck Gando, like, glaring at all these guys whenever they make a catch or whenever they throw a guy out. Like, fuck are you doing? And, like, he catches, like, a an out to, like, end one of the games and everyone's celebrating and he's just, like, shit. <laughs> you
0: right. know? Like, yeah. it's,
1: like, sales just sucks so much of, like, that, that like, again, like, that reverence and that joy and that, you know, sanctity of winning above all, and, like, shows you that, like, for these guys... It's not about that, you know? Like... I, I do
2: wish one of those games took place entirely in that like rich person lounge where there was the man reading oh, God, the ticker yeah. tape of oh, like yeah. the plays and then they had the board where they were like moving the physical representations of the players around the diamond. Isn't that awesome? It was incredible. I truly wish like there was a whole, that would have been like a pretty dramatic all of a sudden to not see them play and be stuck in there. Even for the first game, I thought that would have been pretty cool. I
1: mean, you know, again, Give give sales some credit, like for a lower budget, relatively a lower budget film, like, he gets some really amazing period detail, like, in this film set in 1919. Like, I would
2: have never guessed that it was a lower budget film, so yeah, totally, I agree with you.
0: Yeah, well, that's the hard thing about doing any sports movie, is that inevitably, if you want any kind of realism at all, it's gonna cost a shitload of money. Uh, and I think there are times when 8 Men Out looks great, and other times where you go, like, oh, you can tell this is, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a $6 million million dollar movie and the whole budget went to the actors and maybe they're straining for extras in the background They were, yeah they
1: they he said that like they they would like have to sort of like decide what sequences they were going to shoot and he said at one point even what lenses they were going to use for the crowd based on how many extras could show up that given day like (laughs) he's like we would swap between a 50 and 100 based on how many extras like people
0: they filmed it in indiana
1: and like people they said like extras just like weren't showing up to to help them out,
0: right? Because you're doubling that field in Indianapolis for both locations of the World Series and nine gate games or nine games. So like that must be just yeah, like an organizational nightmare. Oh yeah, obviously, and also, lol. They used to play more games in the World Series, yeah. which is funny.
2: I also thought it was really weird that I the um the first World Series game. It all felt like one like crazy inning because I don't think in the first game you ever see the socks like
0: up to bat, like it's always yeah, it's just, just like them. Eddie getting fucking creamed and them making errors or whatever right yeah
2: but I was like wow what I'm like because at first I was like man the, these guys are really obvious they're doing this all in the first inning but then I realized it was the entire game but um. even that I mean
0: yeah like again the film is is packed to the gills and I and yeah. I do think you know it's like. The more I think about this film, the more I love it, and the more I also realize, like, why anyone wouldn't like it. I mean, it's like, he's just systematically going through the games, showing you the highlights, showing you the in-between, you know? Like, it really is this going through all this stuff very dutifully, and I... Uh, he said that they had, like, back then, you know, I guess whatever you'd call it, like, the
1: game cast now, you'd call it of the game, were, like, extremely detailed. Like, it wasn't just, like hits and outs and runs but he said like the the original like documentation from like the world series you know the stuff that they would use for those like tickers that would go to that like gentleman's sporting club or whatever yeah. like he said they were like extremely detailed like where players were on the field like their movements like what they did so he's like man we just we had it all like we were just storyboarding around like how these plays actually unfolded they weren't like imagining like how it went down so you know, I think again, it's like this sort of, like you said, Marsh, it's extremely detailed. It's like a procedural, like it runs very much like that. You know, so yeah. and so through here, this guy dropped it, this yeah, guy cut it's off the histor- throw. Yeah, when he it's shouldn't a have.
0: historical investigation. It's not a sports film, you know? Because I mean, even then, it's like just watching a, a film where the, the athletes are trying to lose is a weird feeling like it just puts you on edge it's not like watching any other baseball film where you're like hey yeah, both teams played hard right no it adds this whole just like wrinkle uh, to it yeah
1: this dimension of double cross and <laughs> subterfuge and it's like,
2: yeah and it's like that weird element to the drama then juxtaposed with some of the more traditional folksy stuff which i actually like liked yeah. in the film like especially the the little
1: kids you know yeah, I couldn't get the wood on the ball. No kidding. My
2: old man says you guys just give up. He says the socks just lay down for the rest. Yo, man don't know
1: bees. Says who? Hey,
2: yeah. hey. Yeah. Like, that was nice. But, yeah, there are these things and these signifiers that you would expect from, like, a period film, a period sports film, and then it's, like, colliding with them, actively losing the
1: games. So it gives the folksy stuff, like, a weird aura to it, which I enjoyed. I think, again, why this film is is so great is that, you know, it isn't just about like that, you know, it isn't just, again, also about these players and their role in this failure, like Sales then goes beyond it, you know, like he goes to the trial, he goes to the owners, to, you know, the arrival of Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis and how he gets established as the commissioner in, again, a scene that probably wouldn't be too far out for something that like Eisenstein or Pudovkin would do, right? Where they establish the judge, you know, and his role, because again,
0: these with an iron fist,
1: right? These owners, you know, like they're, they're concerned about their product, right? They're concerned about how this thing is going to affect them and their ability to make money off of this entertainment. And the fact that the only reason people watch is because they think it's you know, something sacred because... right
0: They're worried about the reputation and their bottom line.
1: Right. So they they bring in, like, this guy to now oversee baseball, like you said, with an iron fist. And when they're, like, pitching it to him, like, it's so great because he's just like... We need a commissioner, someone outside of uh, baseball who would have certain powers to root.
0: Absolute power.
1: Absolute power.
0: Won't work any other way. People won't believe it. Absolute power. Well, anyhow, we felt that the man
1: that cleaned the Reds out of the country during the war was the right man to clean up baseball. We are prepared to offer you a two-year contract. Lifetime contract. Lifetime?
0: Man worried about his job, bound to play favorites. You gentlemen don't want that, do you?
1: Well, a lifetime contract seems...
0: To- I'm back in court in five minutes, gentlemen. Let's talk salary.
1: And then this whole trial, and then ultimately the establishment of the commission. You know, it makes sense that Watergate was so much an inspiration for sales when he created it. And it made me think again about Baudrillard's famous Watergate-Disneyland comparison, right? And the idea that you know, Watergate and the trial and, you know, the subsequent revealing of the scandal and the conspiracy. It's just like Disneyland. And it's a good comparison to the idea of like the baseball park, right? That when you go in here, everything is sacred and it's protected. This is the only place where rules matter, right? Where you can be sure that everyone's given it their all and no one's corrupted, right? But the same thing with like the trial and the commission, it's a lie in the sense that You know, you see these show trials, these conspiracy trials, and we're big on that in America that, you know, that's what law does. That's what order does. We find corruption and we stamp it out and we make everyone aware of how hard we stamp out that corruption, which is only meant to to sort of show people that corruption actually exists everywhere, right? Corruption is systemic. Corruption is all over the place. Everyone is fucking corrupt, right? But the idea that you go to this place of make-believe, this is the only place where make-believe happens. This is the only place where corruption, you know, is, right? But in actuality, it's, it's everywhere. And I think that's such an interesting comparison to make with this film. And I think it's, It's hugely in sales perspective and why I, you know, connect so well with it, because sales is trying to say, folks, like, don't be so fucking naive, you know, like, which is what so many baseball movies are about, you know, naivete.
0: You know, it's interesting then, because looking at it again, it's it's almost like Buck played by John Cusack is he's the one who sort of is having that kind of moral crisis right the sanctity of the game he hates losing he loves baseball so much he's naive he thinks they're going to change their minds Uh, and he even gets the sort of like sentimental talk uh, with ki- the kid uh, played by John Mahoney, the coach. But again, it's it's funny how how not sentimental the film is, and it's almost like there's the one character who's sort of dealing with that like sh- the shattering of that sentimentality. It's sort of like
2: in Buck McHenry when Jason has his worldview yes. shaken about the baseball cards when he realizes that for you know seemingly arbitrary reasons, baseball cards with black athletes are worth much less, regardless of the stats yeah. of white Wh- Yeah,
0: Willie Mays is worth less than a Mickey Mantle card, and he asks, why? Why is Willie Mays' rookie card worth less than Mickey Mantle's when Mays had the better career?
2: <sighs> well, uh, Mays was black. Mantle wasn't. What's that got to do with anything?
1: Everything.
0: And nothing. And boy... He doesn't like, like <laughs> to hear that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, too, again, it's worth pointing out, like, the historical context of Landis as well. And, and Comiskey meant he has an offhand line in the film about it where... He, you know, he's like, wow, this guy beat the Reds, mm-hmm. so why not bring him in, you know, or whatever. And very specifically, what Landis had been up to in the during the war and after the war was uh, locking up and deporting the industrial workers of the world. So he was known as this, he was, you know, not this extreme reactionary, but he was definitely against organized labor. And other people do uh, accuse him of holding up uh, integration in baseball for maybe another 30 years because baseball was not integrated until one year after he died
1: yes yeah
2: Whoa. yeah
0: he's a bastard and sales <laughs> <laughs> sales makes it very clear
1: that he thinks so you know yes like it's a yeah. very very conscious choice on his part
2: yeah it almost felt like it was setting up uh a sequel or a franchise. Like, here comes the big bad that we'll have to deal with in the next film, you know? (laughs) And boy,
0: did we ever. You're
1: right. I mean, like it's the biggest tragedy of this film is that like this whole fucking confidence scheme falls apart and leads to that entering baseball. Yeah, honestly, there's damage (laughs) that that's done.
0: There's like a couple ways to view this film. And I think one of them is, yeah, the sort of standard baseball account, which is that the Black Sox by throwing the game have committed this mortal sin. Whereas, you know, you may look at it from another perspective and go, well, the real tragedy is that the baseball players didn't get paid for the fix and that it went all so bad you know if that all had just worked out no one would have been wiser and it would have been just another corrupt engine uh, churning in our country you know but no we had to have a trial about it you know one other connection between these films that I thought was very funny comes early on in eight men out towards the end of that long opening sequence when the journalists are sitting in the crowd and John Sales as Ring Lardner says to the custodian, who's come down the steps and he starts sweeping, who is of course African American.
1: Hey Winslow, your boys look sharp. Yeah, they're the best I've uh, seen yet. The best white folks team in any way. I say they're the best, Huey. Best ever.
0: Time will tell, kid. You mm-hmm. know, he sort of makes best a point to say, ever. yeah, they're yeah. the best white team ever. And again, you know, for a film that, of course, can't deal in race, dealing with a segregated sports league of all white people, sales still gets that burn in there. And then again, that connection to Finding Buck that's McHenry. Gal- I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that's galaxy brain shit right Isn't that there. beautiful, Got right? Yeah. Because Yeah, obviously, Mac Henry, played by Oste Davis, is also a custodian and hiding in the shadows of this lesser known history and tradition of the Negro Leagues so that yeah that really blew my mind and again so Ryan why don't you give us your first impressions of your film here because I know none of us had seen this no Mm -mm.
2: yeah it's I mean (laughs) It's a peculiar object for sure. When I was talking about with Eight Men Out how there's this tension, right, where you have um, all these things about, like, corruption and then um, them throwing the games, but then all these, like, folksy elements come in. Here we have, like, if you look at this film as sort of like a little case study in acting, you have all these, the majority of the people in the film are, you know, quite folksy and weird and very much television or even just very much, like, children's films. Style of performances. And then you have Ossie Davis and Ruby D, who are like extremely raw and authentic in and, and, and like really elevate the film anytime they're on screen to, to the point where it's like incredibly moving. You yes. know, um, you've got both. You know Charles Burnett's like warm touch, and then all these children and
0: stiff yeah. white actors <laughs> totally, stand, being yeah. like, "I'm a sports guy." Or yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. The kids are really funny. They they're extremely consistent throughout, both in like how bad, but also how endearing they are. Like yes. I love the introduction of Jason when he's like biking. Is he with Tug? Do you remember? Yes. Who? Yeah. So there's this this like there's a chubby boy on the team. He's the catcher. His name is Tug, um, and he's like a source of fascination for Charles Burnett um, even though he's sort of like hidden in the background of yes. much of the film. But yeah, Jason's like riding his bike with Tug and like here comes Chuck Axelrod, sports newscaster. You know, he's he's pulling in with his daughter. They the, they got the top down, you know, they're enjoying the new town and hey, pizza guys. We'll have the pepperoni.
0: You got us wrong. We're ball players.
2: And then immediately Chuck is, like, titillated by this. He's like, ah, okay, good. Good baseball energy in the town. Like, I like this. I love baseball. My daughter plays baseball. But, the yeah, the kids are, like, pretty consistent with all of that, like, registering at, like, an extremely high pitch the entire time, like, for their love of the game or, like, yeah, I don't know. It's, 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 it's... I haven't watched a film like this in a long time. You know, it reminded me of the kind of things I would see on TV,
0: In 2000. Yeah,
2: totally wholesome. Yeah, like, we were joking before. Like, one way you can access this film is if you, like, subscribe to an Amazon Prime, like, Up and Family Faith channel. Even though the film really doesn't have any uh, religious uh, overtones at all, I would actually say.
1: Well, you know, to me, like, this film, it fits... You know, when you think about a lot of sports films and when you think about baseball films, you have this one sort of classification of baseball films and sport films, you know, that like sport redeems, right? That that sport and its purity, it can be a redemptive thing for the soul and for the spirit, for the psyche, you know? And and this film like falls into that category yeah. of, you know, this idea that like baseball can bring us together. It can transcend race. It can transcend generations and class and all these things, you know? Of course, Burnett still puts an edge onto it, right? And I think that's what saves this film from being just this totally schmaltzy cornball kind of, you know, baseball thing that like, Burnett pushes buttons about race, and he pushes buttons about gender, and he pushes buttons about you know age and class, uh, and and takes time to do that within all of the sort of more you know youthful kind of wholesome baseball is a is a, is a thing that turns us into good people, you know, it totally. turns us into what we should be. You yeah, know? no, I
2: definitely agree. Like, it's always fun going to, you know, some of this for hire type work and then being like an auteurist archaeologist, you know, like going through and seeing like, oh, can I can I find him in here? Like, what, what was he up to? And I think you hit it, you know, you, you, you hit right on it. Like there's, he sort of abandons the stakes for Jason, like halfway through the film, like, you know, you're sort of led to believe that this is going to be some sort of coming of age for Jason. And then eventually Jason simply becomes like a plot function to sort of guide us on our understanding of like what led Ossie Davis to be this custodian and like the world that like put him here. There's a really dark
1: moment that Ossie Davis has where, because partly like this kid can't understand even like, you're this great baseball player. You're this guy. You won 90 games in three years or whatever. Like, why would you want to hide? Like, why would you want to be anonymous? And the line, like I wrote it down, it was just so, so poignant. Like, Ossie Davis is, is talking to his grandson, you know, in the same moment. about like. But you are a great ball player and you quit to sweep floors? I don't get it. Aaron,
2: you know what it was like when you lost your mom and your
1: daddy? The pain. Well, there's a pain that's almost as bad as that one. Black man's pain. You know, always losing when
0: you know you could win. Always being treated less than a man. Now, Jackie Robinson could turn the other cheek, but I couldn't.
1: You know, and he's he's like, he's hitting upon this, like, you know, race and segregation and, you know, being crushed by this system that keeps these players out of the limelight, that keeps them out of success, that keeps them out of, you know, financial equity and all of these things beyond like, yeah, you know.
0: Just like how Ossie Davis was kept out of Hollywood by being blacklisted for his political beliefs, right? He himself has that added layer of personal experience that brings so much gravitas to this character, Mac Henry. I mean, yeah. Like honestly, this felt like a Charles Burnett film to me, uh, except totally. for except for like the the treacly score. Uh, yeah, it's like <laughs> when it first started, I was like, "Ooh, we're being
2: guided in by Kenny G. Like, let's go." Yeah, it's
0: got a very like smooth saxophone, like very not wall to wall, but it's a frequent uh, frequent comer on the. Uh, on the picture a lot of saxophone but otherwise yeah it's got that clean simplicity of his visual style and just yeah really great sort of performances and then again getting deeper into it because there's a moment where they go to the negro league's museum and it's just again I, i'm for Burnett, it's like yeah, he's, sure, he's making an educational film, he's making a family film, but like, it's him, you know? Like, going through that museum or visiting Ernie Banks and hearing, you know, these stories of back in the day. Because again, even, uh, Ryan, I don't know if you know this, but Ernie Banks, of course, a famous Chicago Cub. But he was like in the Negro Leagues for like a year or two, because he's really young compared to, you know, some some of the actual Negro Leagues players. But he was, you know, experienced it. He played for the Monarchs in like 1954 or 53 or whatever.
1: And Um, as somebody who who talked about, you know, when he came to the majors, like the kind of racism he faced, you know, as a sort of... Trailblazer, you know, at that time, uh, like so many other players that also went through that, you know? And so it's a very conscious choice to use Ernie Banks. Yeah, and
0: he's not playing Ernie Banks for the record. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. he's playing like Oli Johnston, some old barnstormer who Buck McHenry knew back in the day.
2: Yeah, and he's used initially as evidence that Buck McHenry is
0: dead (laughs) and that Ossie Davis, like, cannot be
2: Buck McHenry. Okay,
0: we need to talk about this because, I mean, look... I was I totally fell for like the multiple twists in this movie.
2: There were definitely moments where I was like, "Whoa, this is pretty interesting." Is he not Buck McHenry? <laughs> I was like, "What a fucking I really twist that movie!" I was like, "A lot of wh- red herrings." Yeah, well, then I was like, "Wow, like oh my god, like th- this is a twist."
1: Right? You because know, like, okay, uh, even the kid gives up. Yes. You know? Yeah, kids like ah fuck it. I guess I was wrong. Well,
0: because you know? that's what's really interesting to me is how Jason's fanaticism is ultimately like proven correct in the end. But otherwise, there uh, the film in the middle sort of gets really dark, where it, it starts to become about how these white people are just like abusing this old man and trying to run a news story on him without his permission. Yeah. I yeah. mean, Jason's
1: kind of at a certain point he came off to me as like a like a proto QAnon kid because he was like <laughs> yeah. early in internet you know like he's searching conspiracies on the
0: internet he's cracking yeah. you know
1: all these like wild tales and he's trying to connect all these things that shouldn't be connected, well, and one no of one wants connected. when <laughs> he's talking to
0: jim the guy who runs the card shop at a certain point jim's like oh, i just got off the phone with the museum uh, buck mchenry is dead and jason says he's not dead and his reasoning is that it doesn't say he's dead on the baseball card <laughs>
2: right yeah. which is just psychotic <laughs>
0: If yeah, anyone no, really. should know I...
2: that these cards are worth money because they're old. They were like printed like throughout different years. Yeah, really strange. Yeah, but there is definitely a moment where you... Well, once Chuck
0: Axelrod gets involved, I think the ethics get a little questionable because ultimately, right, so Chuck Axelrod, the sports broadcaster, he's new in town, he wants to make a splash at the new station, and finally, Jason's quest to unearth Ossie Davis as this old ball player reaches, yeah, the newsroom and gets him interested. And so, yeah, they're really coming at him, and, and Ossie Davis, the whole time, is like... It's not me. Yeah. And it gets even weirder. It's not me,
2: and I want nothing to do with it. And his
0: wife also denies it and seemingly has no idea. Right. Yeah. And it's later revealed she doesn't know, which is even crazier. Really crazy. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Really crazy.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of like white privilege that sort of like drives
1: some of the, the the morally and ethically questionable decisions that these people make yeah. in finding Buck Henry. Like, totally, like I, they I cross agree. some lines at certain points. You know? I
2: think so. I mean, I was really confused as to what exactly was driving Chuck Axelrod. I mean, I knew he wanted to just like have well, it's like a, a great big, story. If it's, it's a, true, if yeah.
1: it's true, but it's. Yeah, I don't know. He it's has th- that scene where he like totally fucking ambushes yes. Mac Henry. He goes well. like
0: nightcrawler on him. Like they're just gonna have a practice, and he shows up with the the former team of Jason's the Lasers. Yeah, uh, and the news crew.
1: And yeah. like when he's asking you about the practice, then he just like he just fucking like puts him right on the spot. And it's just like, aren't you Buck McHenry? <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. And he's like, what are you talking about? Though we we're just playing a game here. Like, come on, man. Like we gotta get all serious about this shit. Right. He's dead.
2: Yeah, and he's just so insistent cuz even though the news, you know, even after all the denial, Chuck's like I, you know, I've got a feeling about this. Like I've I've got some sources down in Georgia. Like we're figuring all this out. Like I'm going to prove it, goddammit. I'm also, you know, there's like a plot element I was a little bit confused about with Chuck because so th- when Jason is kicked off the team, part of that is inspired by Chuck going to the coach and being like I want my daughter to play on your team and he's like, "Oh, we're like we're full up, you know. Like he says they have
0: too many kids, so they're, like, trying to cut. But, like, really, the it's, it is kind of cruel. The coach is very cruel, and he's like, oh, yeah, we're basically all just, like, cutting the worst players from our team, and if they want to form a team, like, Go ahead.
1: Typical, then, typical expansion team woes, though. Let's be honest. Yeah. But right? that's but that's
2: what I was curious about because Chuck then realizes that's the only option to get his daughter on a team. So he's like, "Sure, like here's my card. Like fax me all the info." But then all of a sudden, the the film is just like, "Okay, it's Jason, this girl, and Aaron, and like it's Chuck is suddenly extremely hands off about forming the team." Even no, though well, it you got to like, understand, <laughs>
0: Ryan. Chuck says this explicitly. He is the owner of the team he's not the coach he's just the owner he filed the paperwork and that's what he says to his daughter in the convertible he goes i always wanted to be an owner
1: yeah another connection between the two films like shady ownership you know yeah and okay so it's not the
2: owner's responsibility to like get players that's the coach
0: well in real baseball it's the general manager who is between the coach and the owner,
2: I guess I just assumed that, that was what he was signing on for because right. he said like fax me the kids' names. No, but but then he's kind of like, hands off. Yeah, they're like starving for players and like what are we gonna do? He I'm tells like, well, his what about daughter the names did... that were faxed to fucking Axelrod. Well, he
0: tells his daughter just <laughs> go around and recruit these kids, and then he just goes off to work. I mean, he is a single working dad. I think that's also an interesting. That's true. There are some interesting wrinkles like that, right? He's a single working dad. He's got a daughter who's really good at baseball and he's very like insistent that she play baseball she's very good at it this sort of like gender equality element uh, to it. I do
2: like all the scenes when like it's just adults talking to each other like Chuck Axelrod talking to the coach or Jason's dad talking to the coach. Yeah they're doing like seedy stuff but they're also like very respectable and polite and just like making compromises. Um, like I think about the scene where the coach is like tending to his fish where Jason's dad's like why why did you cut my son? And he's like "I, yeah, yeah. you know he just gives an explanation and then his dad's like okay I understand like I'm gonna go <laughs> and he leaves. <laughs> the movie's like whenever the kids aren't involved the movies really odd with all the adults and knowing now that it was like filmed in canada and that some of them might be canadian actors there's some of that like canadian politeness in there
1: (laughs) well i mean both films are really about betrayal if you think about it you
0: know totally
1: (laughs) there's a lot of a lot of double dealing a lot of double crossing a lot of Shady
0: ownership? We should say, too, so yeah, this expansion team they have, and this is another part of Jason's quest. Again, he's certainly not revealing or finding Buck Henry for any, like, Legitimate good reasons, other than he wants to use it to advertise their team, so they get more players. Because they if only have, have a
1: famous <laughs> coach, then yeah,
2: they'll the flock to
1: you, us. Yeah. You think that's right. Jason's motivation? That's definitely Chuck, because he wants to be on a team. Like he wants to play ball. Like he's you uh, it know, seems just
2: so much more
1: like fanatical and emotional. For I think him. it becomes that, you know, yeah. because he loves baseball. Like he sees baseball as you know that thing we've been talking about this sort of romantic mythic thing you know it isn't just a game you know for him it's it's everything it's his whole life i mean his room you know they they go into detail to show all the sports memorabilia in his room and the cards you know and and for that you know they hold this iconic status for him so i think once you know he realizes that he might be close to one of these iconic figures, he has to prove this. He has to prove sure. to himself that this thing he's built his entire life around, it isn't what one of the one of the kids on the lasers describes it as. You know, one of the kids on the laser says,
2: Still living in a house of cars, Jace baseball cards like amazing for him
1: you know he he's the he's the investigator in the sense that you know I think it was Deleuze who like described you know the investigator in film sometimes as an almost like religious figure a religious fanatic you know because he has to prove the existence of god you know he has to prove the existence of these gods these sports figures you know so that's why for him it becomes this this deep-seated fanaticism, because in his dark moment, you'll recall what he does. He goes into his room and he starts to rip down the posters. He has a you Citizen
0: Kane moment. Yeah, I he love, he does, I yeah.
2: love watching kids trash like trash room. their mm. rooms. Yeah, it's, yeah. Always it's a very McCaffrey half-hearted trash. trash.
1: I mean, like, the kid sucks as an actor. Like, he's, yeah. not, he's not really smashing it up. He's very, you know, he takes the poster, but he avoids yeah. knocking all the trophies down or whatever. In case know, there was another take. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but, yeah, he does. Like, he has that moment where he starts to, like, to tear down those idols that he's put all of his faith in, you know? And I would also point out that it's one of the things that doesn't age well for this kid, being that, you know, his biggest idol is Mark McGuire, who... Again, draw whatever kind of ironic connection you want between this that was eventually unmasked as one of the most notorious cheaters, if you call it that, in baseball history, the steroid scandal. This was 2000, right? I mean, so this was like right at that moment. You know, when Maguire was about to be unmasked along with a lot of other players in their their steroid abuse, you know. Maybe, you know.
2: Bur- maybe Burnett knew, and that's the reason why when he does the Maguire stance, that he sucks. Uh, he sucks. It's because he doesn't have the roids in him. Yeah, he's doing
0: it. he's doing Maguire stance at the beginning, and everyone is ripping on him yeah. because yeah. he's just like the backup catcher who sucks. Right. And he's just like emulating this. this I loved <laughs> it,
1: though, because he, he, he was doing the Maguire stance because he's like, well, that's what he's doing on the baseball card or whatever. And then, uh, you know Ossie Davis McHenry or Buck McHenry whichever you'd like to call him he comes in and he's going to fix his baseball stance and he he switches him up to like a Jeff Bagwell stance yeah, you know he puts him, him in the chair yeah he's like sit down in this chair it's a great scene and he takes the chair out and he's like that's how you got it and he squatted so low like Jeff Bagwell like I love that and they're like wow he can coach because then he like <laughs> hits <laughs> yes. Yes. but then the kid switches it up later and he goes right back to the stand right you know, McGuire stance I do
2: love the idea though of Jay As, like, a Deleuzean religious searcher. And I I like you bringing up the bit where he's like staring at the cards because there was a funny moment when I was watching it and Molly was in the room and he's looking at the the baseball cards and, you know, thinking about his coach and he's like, Mac Henry McHenry. Mac Henry McHenry. And then in the background, I hear Molly do Mr. Burns going, ketchup, ketchup. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. it's a great alias. Yeah. It's a great alias.
0: Yeah, speaking of religious elements, that's in fact what is referenced. Well, there's actually, now that I think about it, there's kind of several kind of religious things. Not just him riding his bike into the water and sort of being like rescued or whatever. But when Chuck Axelrod organizes this like news ambush where it's the lasers versus the sluggers. (laughs) And they get there and it's only three on nine because the sluggers only have three players And David and Goliath. Yes. And and, and the kids are like, fine, we'll play. And I'm thinking like, this is insane. How are you going to play a baseball game with three players? And Ossie Davis is hesitant until Axelrod says, yeah, it's like David and Goliath. And then they and then they play. And because Aaron, you know, Ossie's grandson, is such a good pitcher, he's just like striking out the entire other team. And they do end up winning this practice game. Yeah,
2: but then there's an incredible moment where Kim and Jason are on the bases and Aaron's up to bat. And the pitcher is starting to get the idea. He's like, well, if I walk them, then they're out of place. They'll have to yeah. forfeit. They'll yeah. have to forfeit. Because <laughs> then they'll stranded, the, 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 you know? the bases will be loaded and then no one can get the Runners left on base, yeah. three. And what happens? <laughs> and what happens? Fucking Tug, tug stands man. up, walks over to him. He's like,
1: are you afraid to pitch to him? I don't have to. We just load the bases and they're stuck, right? I don't want to win like that. Tug, this thing's gonna be on TV. You wanna win like that on TV? Fine. You're the captain.
0: Yeah, Tug upholds the sanctity of the game. <laughs> and then
2: Aussie looks at him
1: and says...
0: You're a good man, Tug we'll see and then the next like ball is a you know a smash to the outfield yeah. and <laughs> yeah. the sluggers win or whatever yeah uh, i love but the yeah. pitcher throws his hat on the ground like we fucking have you, know? like, you fucking dumb shit. all we pitcher. had to do was walk the bases loaded and this game was over yeah, yeah. <laughs> just drill
1: him with a pitch you know anything you know did you also pick up on that that his grandson his name is aaron henry
0: Hank Henry Aaron, yeah, Hank Aaron, Henry yep. Aaron. Well, yeah, again, now I'm obsessed with thinking about this film as like a religious thing because it really. Well, did. like
1: I said, it, it it I discovered that it was streaming on the Faith and Family Channel. Thing, very, like, yeah. I was sort of like, so I learned that before I went into it, and I was then watching it and being like, all right, <laughs> is this going to be some weird religious thing? You know, like uh, it is. Well, there but is, but, but baseball. Baseball. when we're talking about all this, like, you well, baseball know, is, the, is a religion the, for some <laughs> people, the, right?
2: the, like the sanctity of redemption and all of that, right? Like. The film Jason never lets you forget that Buck McHenry had a scrape
1: with the law.
0: I mean, well, he's on his
2: card. He's yeah. got to say that like maybe f- twenty-five times in the so movie. Scrape times. with the law. So
1: even then, when you think about it, if you want to take that to you know the a further a further you know conclusion or whatever, then this film is also about a resurrection. The resurrection of Buck McHenry Absolutely. as well brings True. him back from the dead. Yeah, you know by the end of the film, and. The miracles of, you know, helping them win and, you know, build the team and all that. That's this. true. I forget. I
0: forgot there was a quick montage at the end where they do, like, condense a whole season of Sluggers action yeah. uh, into, like, oh, they were the best team. Aaron was the MVP. But, again, and remember, you know, not to, not to jump to the finale, but... Talk about that resurrection. It's represented by the double-sided baseball card that is presented to Ossie Davis in the end, where on one side, it's Buck McHenry, Negro League star, and on the other side, it's Mac Henry, coach and of, custodian. The <laughs> custodian of the Sluggers, uh, and well, they and then celebrate actually, him.
2: Um, Ernie Banks makes a reference saying um, Negro League players, they wouldn't have stats on the back of their cards. And when I was so, you know, again, I'm not a baseball guy, but I was doing a little bit of research and I saw that in December 2020, the Major League Baseball announced that the uh, Negro Major Leagues were now major leagues and that yep. their their statistics were finally being recognized. That's so I'm right. wondering if they're reprinting cards presumably with well, the stats should. on them. Yeah, I feel like that's what Burnett you know, that was his edge too. Especially We were talking about that sequence at the Negro league museum. It was a really interesting scene just because there are all these moments with these camera pans where you thought like the reveal was going to be, he finally found the Buck McHenry exhibit, but that was not the purpose of that scene. Like the camera was there to function as like literally documentary through the exhibits.
0: Yeah. And that's, we should mention, right? So, this all you know is sort of building as you know this team is being organized and jason is fanatically trying to prove that the local custodian is a a legendary baseball player. And (laughs) it's like, you know, Jason went too hard uh, at, you know, poor, poor Mac Henry. And he starts to feel bad. He starts to also have like second thoughts, but he's also still sort of like hell-bent on proving it. And even though multiple people are telling him, you know, he's dead, he is like, we got to go to Kansas City to the museum that Ryan was just talking about. And then further, they go to meet an old friend of Buck McHenry, Ollie Johnston, played by Ernie Banks. And there's an, again, it's like right after the museum, these two scenes back to back are like really just, yeah, Burnett just kind of taking a moment to talk about the history and dig into it and highlight these players and look at pictures of them and now here's ernie banks and he's talking about them and he literally remembers these guys yeah he's you just know? like pointing
2: at pictures on his wall describing all the contributions of the different players
0: i was worried for ernie like he, he's pretty old here and i was like oh my god is he gonna just be like the worst actor you know and he's kind of raw but like you get the sense that, yeah, he's just obviously being himself, and in that moment when he's, like, pointing out all these different guys, I mean, I found it all very moving, and Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my god, Ernie, you know, like... They were just tremendous players. Over here is Jackie
2: Robinson. I knew Jackie when he first came to the Kansas City Monarchs. Over here is my real good friend, Cool Papa Bell. He was so fast, he could circle the bases and Eleven seconds.
1: I mean, it's it's one of the things about the film again that like sort of you know saves it a little bit for me is like the earnestness is it's it's so genuine that it it's like it's hard to feel cynical about it. Yeah. It's hard to be that you know critical of yeah Ernie Banks showing up because. Like, it's easy when you watch something like Eight Men Out to to go to those cynical places to, you know, think about Watergate, to think about college sports, to think about corruption and gambling to the point that, you know, when you do walk away from it, you kind of feel like dirty about the whole thing, you know, like everyone takes a hit in that. Whereas in the case of you know, finding Buck McHenry, like, it's so, like, <laughs> it it wants us to be that kid again, but also to, like, learn something in the process, to grow through this experience.
2: Yeah, I mean, and especially having being based off of a, a children's book as well, just the fact that, yeah, it is quite honest, and it does. I, I, like, I was always, like, a little disarmed at times when, you know, there would be these, like... in these moments of real charm, right? Like at first I was a little nervous, you know, I was like, ooh, like these kids, like here we go. But then when you get the first scene with Ossie Davis and you know, Jason's really insistent that he was safe, that he made it to first base, even though he like, without, you know, it's completely unambiguous. Like he- Everyone agrees he was out. He was out. And he asks, he asks, you know, Mr. McHenry. Did you think I was out?
1: Son. If you'd have stayed in that battle's box any longer, they would have charged you rent.
2: And I was like, ah, here we go. This is good. I'm like, okay. Like oh, the, yeah. The here stars we go. are here. You know, things are, things are working out. But no, I, I agree. It's like a film that does have history on its mind and both in a very functional way tries to deliver that information to us, but
0: it also feels incredibly sincere just because of the perspective of Ye- the film. And it's ultimately revealed, right? So Jason goes to see Ernie Banks with his dad. Uh, he also, when they're when he insists that they need to fly there, he tells his dad that he's willing to sell his Ken Griffey junior rookie card to fund the flight uh, and his dad's like no nah, really you don't need to do that i have miles also, he was gonna a yeah, i have miles
1: i'm a lawyer yeah <laughs> he was about to mortgage the future too because man you hold on to that card for another 20 years and damn like come on yeah. you gotta know <laughs> that thing is only gonna go up and yeah.
0: down the bubble's you know? gonna burst my man yeah. sell yeah. sell sell um and so yeah they they go and they get the real truth well, the partial truth of what happened to Buck McHenry. And so Ernie Banks is the first to tell the story where the reason why he left baseball forever was this barnstorming game. And that's where it's revealed that the black players used to throw games on their barnstorming tours to appease the white towns and communities that they were rolling through. And so Banks tells Jason it was one game where Buck got spiked by another player really bad you know all like real horrible in his, le- in his yeah spikes up you know tore his leg apart and he fought back and he punched the other player and a riot happened and he ran away and uh, yeah. nev- and
1: specifically a black man struck a white man yes. in
0: the south He hi- yes he highlights that fact and then he of course takes him to the false grave where he's like well now that i told you what really happened to him he's dead here here's where he here's where he lies and he says i buried him he does he's yeah he's the coveter of yeah the sort of myth or uh the secret of of buck mchenry and then of course ultimately Ossie comes around and is like uh,
2: he's like hell i'm buck mchenry yeah. well know. the kid
1: sees his scar Yes,
2: yes. The kid
1: sees that is the reveal, Scott yes. Because he's still like, you know, the kid comes back and is basically like, okay, I saw the grave, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Mac Henry's like, good, are we done with all that shit now? <laughs> and meanwhile, like, he gets, he's fishing and he gets his lure caught in a tree and, the you know, it's like, oh, you got your lure caught in a tree. He's like, all right, I'll go deal with that. And he's like, glad we're done with all this nonsense and you know that Buck McHenry's dead and that I'm not him. And he rolls up his <laughs> pant legs to go get his fishing lure unhooked. And then Jason sees the scar that was like a jagged lightning bolt down his leg. Yep. And that's the. Uh, it does make, it make comes you, clean. It, it, it makes you wonder who is um, buried there. I loved it too. There was like a moment when. You know, because the dad who goes along with the trip, who's the attorney, and he goes specifically to, you know, make sure that it's all legal as we as we uncover all this stuff. And they're walking towards the grave. Uh, the dad who's the attorney, like says to, you know, Ollie Johnson Ernie Banks, he says, uh, would you be willing to sign a statement to this effect? You know, like would you make and I thought he was gonna say, like, would you be willing to sign something to have this grave, like, exhumed? <laughs> yeah, I know. I thought, I I thought so, like, too. I was so expecting him to be like, let's exhume this grave, and then be like, oh, shit, there's nobody <laughs> in there
0: or whatever. Like, no one tell Jason about what an exhumation
1: is. Right, I thought they are going to dig this fucking guy up.
0: Like, that would have been amazing. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, so,
2: you know, Mac Henry does come forward as Buck McHenry. Yes. And in the final chunk of the film, were treated to Axelrod's story. Early on in it, he, he like, kind of cheerfully says, a story that could only happen in America. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, because of, like, the racial tension <laughs> and, like, all of, like, the yeah. horrible things in this country. Story. Yeah, like, that's the story. I was curious what Chuck Axelrod meant by that, the, the, a story that could only happen in America. Like, in his mind. What was he talking about? Was he just talking
0: about like you that fall legends walk grid? among us? That le- you know, sh- oh sure. Or yeah. I mean, a little bit of both. I don't think he's that ignorant, you know. You don't. Well,
1: as another as another very famous sportsman, uh Don King had often said, "Only in America, right?" Like that's so, right. <laughs> you know, wh- whatever you want to do with that, yeah, that phrase, "Only in America," right? Because I mean, clearly. You've got Chuck Axelrod's idea of what only in America means, but then Charles Burnett's idea of only in America is probably a little bit different, you know? Yeah. So I think it's like, you know, it's a thing that you can sort of read and, and interpret what you'd what you'd like in it. And again, like that's I think clearly what Charles Burnett has done with this film, you know, that yes, he created a children's a children's film about baseball and the redemptive power of such. But, you know, he also created a film that that pulls the, the curtain back a little bit on the sordid history of racial division in America's pastime and in, you know, honoring these heroes and legends. And,
2: and then you get that truly, truly shocking moment when Ossie Davis is talking about Yeah, so he's, like,
0: telling his story on TV. He's
2: telling his story on TV and his experience as a black baseball player in the Negro Leagues. And he starts listing off all the things, you know, he's like, oh, we had to deal with white players, you know, insulting us. And then he starts listing off some, like, racial slurs that he says white people called him, and then Chuck Axelrod interrupts and he says, "Yeah, and they called you." And then he says the n word like on TV. Yeah, yeah I couldn't I, believe I,
1: that. I, I, I like highlighted that because like he, he said it with like glee too. Yeah. Like, he looked so excited. He like to a little nod. It.
0: Yeah, like, yeah. He was like
1: like that, and then Ossie Davis goes like, "Yeah, and that one too, you know." Like, yeah, like yes, yeah, also that word, you know, like. Oh
0: man! Like, Again, like. I feel like Charles Burnett's a really nice guy, but I do get the vibe that in this film, like, these white people are fucking blundering. They are tactless. Yeah. They are... You know, they all mean well, but they're all very crude, especially when it comes to anything regarding race or whatever. And so I do think there's like that stealth element to the film where there is an awkwardness and a clumsiness and a sort of tone deafness to a lot of the way the the white characters in this film behave.
2: Yeah. It actually kind of reminds me of the energy in Michael Schultz's Carbon Copy, oh. where, you know, it is like... You know, you have to wonder if we're reading into it, but it, it does seem like maybe if he's got a script that um, has these shortcomings, he's just like letting the white people sort of reveal, yes. you know, their own prejudices and their own blunders um, just by like letting it all play out naturally and just being like, well, yeah. you know, hands off. Just look at automatically
0: all of this. in contrast to like the way... He's working with Ossie Davis and yep. Ruby D in this film. I mean, it's such a marketed difference. I mean, clearly, there's fucking better actors. Yes. Yeah, I mean, by they're... like
2: quite a huge <laughs> margin, too.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's crazy. And I mean, the film does have, you know, yeah, it is TV aesthetic all the way down, but it's well composed, nice widescreen. I was like screen capping all the shots of the river, they were all like very picturesque. Uh, there are some, some nice images in here beyond yeah. just the formalities of you know your typical uh, mm-hmm. television family film kind of thing
2: there's that incredible image of tug watching chuck axelrod's broadcast where tug is Sort of slouched on the couch, um, or I guess uh, maybe "slouch" is the wrong word because he is sitting at attention, and he's got like his big glass of soda, his giant untouched burger with a side of fries. He's like a big
1: sloppy Joe. Yeah,
2: yeah. And there's and he's just like lit by a lamp, and there's no one else in the room with him, and he's just like sort of silently watching this broadcast where God knows where his family is. I mean, Tug might live alone.
0: No, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, that burger he's all said
1: yeah but it's also yeah it's i guess like this kind of this 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 sort of world shattering moment for tug you know when tug himself reveal like like learns you know that like oh my god the world isn't this beautiful picturesque place that i thought it was and he learns about prejudice and he learns about you know subterfuge and all that stuff so yeah it was a it was a very interesting shot of tug it struck struck me as well because of that like it's a very sad shot you <laughs> it know is. It really
0: it's kind of heartbreaking
2: <laughs> yeah i there was the shot i was most moved by in the film without a <laughs> doubt and it's there for like a second and a half
1: yeah
0: i was most moved by the interface of the uh the internet i gotta say too talk about more stealth vibes but like that's like a nicholas ray kind of household they have going on there where there's a, a quiet instability at like the core of like the the kid jason seems just like so disconnected from his parents yeah and his obsession with baseball it seems you know it's so strained with them and his dad is <laughs> very hard on him and he's like freaking out you know throughout a lot of the movie very yeah I, the, that home i don't like what's going on there
1: talking about these films is like a double feature as well i think there's some some really like interesting connections even in just like looking at who both John Sayles and Charles Burnett are you know I mean these are two I think very depending on who you talk to like underrated uh American auteurs you know both people who have struggled through their careers to get I think you know budgets that they deserve for the films that they make and I think both are like great with the resources that are available to them for what they set out to do. You know, certainly sales has probably gotten, I think a little bit more in terms of budgets throughout his career than, than, um, you know, than Charles Burnett is. But I think both of these films like at their core are about revealing something to people, you know, in the case of eight men out, it's this, you know, notorious scandal, but not just the scandal itself, but perhaps the motivations, you know, the, 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 The reasons that capital can corrupt. And in the case of finding Buck McHenry about the racial division that plagued the sport for so many years, that our idea even of icons and legends and statistical leaders itself should be questioned, right? Itself is, you know, uh, corrupted, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, definitely. Definitely.
1: Yeah, it's funny, too,
2: comparing Finding Buck McHenry with another for hire Charles Burnett film. I've seen uh, his film about Namibia, which was funded by like a political organization in Namibia, and he had way more money on that film, but... I actually think the Namibia film feels more televisual, even though it's, like, in scope. Like, it seemed like he had a little more creative control over Buck McHenry. Like, having just seen both of those and, like, looking at them side by side. Um, (laughs) Yeah, one's, like, a big budget, seemingly, like, you'd think he would be, like, totally liberated to do, like, this big uh, historical epic as opposed to this small little Showtime movie. But, um, personally, I feel like he got away with more. In um, sure in Buck McHenry. Well, you
0: certainly got a lot more experience with the small film. I mean, I like all yeah. of the films, at least the ones of his I've seen are, yeah, basically chamber pieces to to some extent. And mm-hmm. finding Buck McHenry's really not that different. You know, there's just a handful of characters and yeah. following them around. You know, nothing revolutionary, but very, uh, yeah, just attuned to everything that's going on in there. Yeah. One thing that we didn't talk about is the ending uh, of of Eight Men Out. Now, because that this is an interesting thing to me, and I am kind of like have conflicted feelings about the postscript because I feel like the epilogue. Uh, yeah, the epilogue. I feel like it does kind of undermines that lack of sentimentality, right? It is like a dose of sentimentality at the end. But one thing I wanted to bring up that I find really fascinating is that the the Black Sox, they were banned from baseball. And I don't know how many people know that that doesn't just mean they were banned from Major League Baseball. They were banned from baseball by Landis, right? So, And there
1: were attempts by the players... To sort of like still do stuff, like do independent games. Semi-pro,
0: barnstorming. First of all, that's another wrinkle, too, is in the 1910s, Major League Baseball, led by Charles Comiskey, outlawed barnstorming. That was a way that players would make extra money in the offseason, and the league said, You can't do that. So that was already like a big sort of political labor issue at the time. And so these guys, they attempted to play and the other players who were going to play with them were threatened by Major League Baseball saying, if you play with these guys, you're banned. And they scared everyone. These guys couldn't even play for fun in a semi-pro league.
1: And they even told like people who had ball fields, if you let these guys play on your ball field, like will never work with you again, you know? Like, o- owners of stadiums and ball fields could also, like,
0: be be held. And it wasn't until the Field of Dreams that they ever,
1: <laughs> they ever got <laughs> to play again. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, I guess that's the gag, but... Mm-hmm.
1: But you're right. In the ending, right, it, we should probably explain the epilogue, right? Uh, this is years later now. It's, like, 1925 or something like that, and there's this small minor league or independent sort of semi-pro game that's going on in hoboken new jersey and isn't
0: there like a sepia thing or like a color thing going on yeah so he he
1: the the sales talked about really that weird, yeah. he he had the um, they like desaturated all the color yeah. in that epilogue so it looks very yeah it, you know, washed out it and gray. stands
0: out from the rest of the film mm-hmm. for sure
1: And uh, there's just some people sort of watching this ball game, and there's a guy that's, you know, playing, and and people start talking about him and pondering, like, this guy's way too good to be playing here, like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, he's like a one-man team himself. And it turns out that it's Shoeless Joe Jackson, you know, played by D.B. Sweeney, who's under disguise who's playing this game under a different name. And the people start talking about him and they go, man, he looks like somebody. Like I think I recognize him. And then it's also revealed that in the crowd is John Cusack, Buck Weaver, who's also watching the game and watching him, and and he goes, I saw him play. Yeah? What
0: do you think? He was the best. Run, hit, throw. He was the best.
1: So what do you think? Is that him? No. Those fellas are all gone now. Well, you know, but he also doesn't reveal that he's Buck Weaver, you know, and so then it's left like, oh, he's an honest. But that was like a a true thing, you know, that that Shoeless Joe was, like, he did try to do that. He played under an assumed name. Yeah, because, and, you know, like, I, I get what you're saying about, you know, how it's sort of, oh, well, it's this moment, but again... At the end of the day, this is also a baseball right. movie, it and is, so yeah,
0: it is the mythic note that the rest of the film lacks. I just don't think that you need it. I understand there are demands. Yeah. We, and, we laughed. And yeah. We're like, oh my god. Yeah, in,
1: in that sense too, I feel like it's also like maybe Sales' way of trying to, to do what others tried to do throughout history, which was to sort of like you know, exonerate Shoeless Joe. Like, and some of these guys, like, again, you draw a little comparison, right? Okay, you got two films about ballplayers named Buck, right? Uh, You got Buck Weaver and Eight Men Out. You got Buck McHenry or whatever. But there's a line that's really interesting that was in sort of both films associated with Bucks. In uh, Finding Buck McHenry, there's a part where Ernie Banks is like talking about Buck McHenry and he says something like, you know, Buck was a great player and a true friend. That's a rare combination. There's also a moment in 8 Men Out when Buck Weaver is really struggling with what's going on because he knows about everything, but he's trying to play his honest game. You know, he has that confrontation with another guy uh, where he's like, you play your game and I'll play my game and we'll just see how it plays out. And he's trying to play honest, right? But he doesn't snitch on guys. And he's like talking to those kids at one point. And he's just like, if you don't stand up for your friends, if you don't watch out for your friends, you're nothing. You know, like he's explaining that to them in the same way that, you know, Ali Johnston wasn't snitching on Buck McHenry. You know, you have this other instance of of a Buck not snitching, you know, and, and sort of revealing something. But it is in that moment, in that end, you know, this kind of like I feel like sales to a certain extent trying to exonerate Shoeless Joe. You know, the idea with Shoeless Joe is that he was like a moron, you know, like he couldn't read. He was very uneducated. And the story often went that he was kind of manipulated, depending on who you talk to. I mean, like, the point with Shoeless Joe is that the only thing that went in that guy's head was baseball. Like, that's all he understood, you know? He's got the moment where they slide the confession in front of him, and he's like, I, you know, and he's so embarrassed. He's like, usually my wife helps me with these things, and I'm like, don't worry, just sign it, you know? Like, he's sort of taken advantage of, so I feel on a certain level that, yes, it's a little corny note, but it's also Sales' way of just sort of being like... Maybe this guy was the only really pure guy on the team, you know, this, and now he's doing it for nothing, you know, he's just doing it just because it's all he wants to do, you know?
2: Yeah. If any, if any one of them was going to get that send off, I'm glad that it was Shoeless Joe.
1: Cause Buck even has that moment in the courtroom where he's kind of like cynical where all that stuff, even about friends, where he starts to realize he's going down and he jumps up and he's trying to separate himself from everybody. He's like, I batted 324, <laughs> you know? Yeah, he's he like, he's throwing out that. his stats, you know? Like any guy that starts throwing out his stats, you know? It's like, come on. Low
0: key though, like maybe Q'sac's best performance.
1: Well, wait a minute now, what if they don't call me? Be seated. Your honor, I want a separate trial. The fact that I never took a penny has been brought up once. I hit 327 in this series. I didn't make an error. I'm being charged with a conspiracy. I didn't have nothing to do with.
0: Well, speaking of acting, uh, Ryan has some, some thoughts about uh, John Sayles as an actor that hurt my feelings. Ooh. Ooh. And I just wanted to ask him on the pod, you know, uh, you got a beef with Sayles as an actor. And I, wanna, I want you to tell me what that's all about. Where, who hurt you? <laughs> Was it the brother from another planet? Yeah,
2: I mean he's really bad in that. He's much better in Eight Men Out than he is in Brother from Another Planet, and I love that movie, and I do really, really like him as a director. I just like kind of think he belongs in acting prison. And like <laughs> with <laughs> Eight Men Out, I get it because like he does look exactly like the guy. He's oh my god, playing. he looks so much like. So Ring like Lardin. he couldn't resist it, but I feel like he's just like a joke compared to Su- Studs Terkel in that bit like where they're like playing off each other like he just like isn't even remotely up to snuff well he's like
0: self-consciously underplaying it because he knows that he's a director and he doesn't want to do anything that's like flashy totally
2: that i mean i think that's my issue is like it feels very much like a director's performance like he is like so conscious of the fact that he's like all right i'm Like, here I am on screen. Like, I know what the frame looks like. I was just checking it. Like, it's got (laughs) that, it's like this horribly stilted
0: vibe that just... Well, plus, because he's got all the, you know, he's got the Ring-Lardner dialogue. Lardner was, like, a satirist, a humorist Mm -hmm. from 1919. So he already has this sort of colorful way of speaking. And then Sales is just, like underplaying it yeah i i do get it it's I, almost I like, like a shakespearean it, but, you know. sort
1: of delivery you know I, I don't hate him you know like I, I i think he's like fine in it you know but it is a presence that you feel it stands like, out yeah, yeah i just think you know? it
0: functions well like you said as a as a sort of chorus or as a a common you know because they are seeing the big picture from the beginning yeah so
2: no i I, I don't think the character needs to be removed. I think a different actor needs to play the Greek chorus sure. and just play it better, because I like the character
0: in the film. Was Royco still alive? They should have got yeah, it. come on. dude. Yeah, you know, yeah, come totally. on,
1: dude. You know. All right, Marsh, well, you know, these are the baseball films that came to our minds, and you are somebody... We've had a lot of conversations about baseball films, so what are some of the baseball films that you think are worth taking a look at
0: well i do you know i really do like a lot of the sort of canonical american baseball films whether that's bad news bears or bull durham so i wanted to highlight a lesser known baseball film and one from another country and japan loves baseball so i will buy you from 1956 by Kobayashi, uh, I think is a really sort of good companion to Eight Men Out because it's a film that really doesn't have a ton of baseball. It's mostly about an agent who's trying to like sign this player and engineer a signing. And it really is just kind of a gangster film, but just it's baseball, but it's gangster. You know, you get it. You get it. It's it's really good. And I've re- I've been really thinking too, I want to watch more like baseball films from other countries if if there are them outside of outside of Japan. Well, yeah, so this
2: week it was Marsh's pick for the theme. Uh, Andy, you're up next. So wh- what do you got for us?
1: Well, you know, I was struggling a little bit because I was trying to come up with a topic, you know, that was sort of different from things that we've done, and I, I kept sort of running into walls. And because I was struggling to break out from this mental block, I thought of... Escape And specifically, the idea of no escape. So, the next topic, I'm giving you guys the idea of no escape.
2: Wow,
0: I'm scared. Yeah, me too. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies. Or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. What do you think of these players of yours now, Mr. Gleason?
1: I think they're the greatest ball club i ever seen, period.